Well, good morning again. This morning we're going to look at one of the uh, wonderful miracles of our Lord. In this miracle we see again His compassion, His kindness, His power to heal. But there's a point in this story, in this miracle, that we often miss. So we're going to be looking at the healing of the ten lepers in Luke 17. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Luke 17. I remember years ago when Ron Gonzalez was teaching this passage, his daughter Jenny, who was about five years old at the time, was very excited. She loved animals. And when she heard he was going to teach a story about all these animals, she thought that was great. When he told her that he was going to teach on the ten leopards. Obviously, she uh, missed the point. But as I studied this miracle, I, I, I came to realize that that really is the point of this miracle. That we often miss the point when it comes to our salvation. This is a story about missing the point. Now, missing the point can be entertaining at times. Uh, last week, as I was standing in the back, one of the ushers told me a joke he had just heard. This guy dies, goes to heaven... There, St. Peter meets him at the gate, tells him, to get in, you've got to answer three questions. The first question is, how many days of the week start with a T? Second question is, what is the total number of seconds in a year? And the third question in this entrance exam was, what is God's name? So the guy stands there for a while and he thinks about it and he says, okay, okay, I know. There are four days that start with a T. Today, tomorrow, Tuesday, and Thursday. Peter kind of rubs his head and says, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> You're missing the point, but I'll accept that. Now, how many seconds are there in a year? I think he says 12. 2nd of January, 2nd of February, 2nd of March. Peter is going, oh, gee. Okay, okay. Now, this one's important. You've got to get this one. You can't miss the point on this one. What is God's name? The guy thinks and he thinks. Oh, I got it. It's Andy. Peter says, Andy? He says, yeah, you know, like the old hymn says, Andy walks with me, Andy talks with me. (laughs) Last month, somebody pinned up a a list of uh, bulletin bloopers that that people had mailed into a a Christian magazine. Let me uh, just read a few of those. These are announcements that could easily miss the point. First one was, don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. (laughs) Next one was, for those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. (laughs) And there was, uh, this evening there will be a meeting in the south and north ends of the church. Children will be baptized at both ends. This being Easter Sunday, we will ask Mrs. Lewis to come forward and lay an egg on the altar. (laughs) And then finally, at the evening service tonight, the sermon will be on the topic of what is hell. Come early and listen to our choir practice. (laughs) I like that one, a new definition of hell. (laughs) These are fun, but sometimes missing the point hurts. Uh, A while back I was talking to a gentleman in his mid-sixties. His uh, children were all grown. He was retired. And as we talked, he told me with sadness 
how he had missed the point. He had, he had thrown himself into his career. He had excelled and advanced. He had provided well for his family. But as he was looking back on his life and recognized that his, his job didn't mean anything to him now and his, his wife and children were strangers, he was realizing that he had missed the point. It wasn't that he had been grossly uh, negligent or, or insensitive. He had been a very responsible father and husband. It's just that being responsible and respectable isn't the point of it all. He had missed the point in his home life. He had missed the point in his relationships with his family. Now there is another relationship that is even more important. And so often we miss the point. We don't want to come to the end of our lives and look back with sadness and say we missed the point. So let's take a look at our passage and see what uh, Jesus has to tell us about missing the point. Act, the, the, excuse me, our passage actually starts in verse 11, but I want to back up a little to uh, overlap a little with what, some of the things that Jackson taught on last week because I think this leads into understanding our passage. I want to start in verse 7. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat. Would he not rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now you see, the people that Jesus was talking to had missed the point. These were the Pharisees who were very strict about their obedience. These people thought that a walk with God was all about obedience. They thought they would have defined the Christian life as obedience. Now this is, <coughs> excuse me, in this story Jesus is implying that, no, that really isn't the point. Obedience isn't enough. There is something more to it. There's something that they are missing. Now, this is confusing. Because all the way through the, 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 the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus is very clear that we are to obey. He is not at all shy about calling us to obedience, telling us that we need to obey Him. It, it is the evidence of our faith. It is the evidence that we really believe what he says. It's the evidence that we love him. He says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And then in Matthew 7, he says, if you're not obeying me, you're showing by your life that you don't really know me. When you come to the end of your life, he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. This is serious stuff. Obedience is critically important. Yet here Jesus is implying it's really not the heart of it. It's really not the point of it all. Now let me affirm to you that obedience is essential. It is vitally important. But according to Jesus, if you're looking for your sense of affirmation, if you're looking for assurance by running around and doing everything you think you're supposed to do, even everything the Bible says to do, it won't work. Listen to, to, to what you'll feel at the end. He says, so you too, when you've done the things you were told to do, should say, 
We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now let me ask you, how many of you pray enough? How many read your Bible enough? How many give all that you could possibly give? How many of you serve all the time? How many of you are always loving? You know, if, if our whole life belongs to Jesus, we can never do more than we should. Now, don't get the idea that it's not important to do these things. These things are very important. God wants faithful servants, obedient slaves. But what He really wants is much, much more. Now, hopefully I have you at least a little bit confused. Because I want to go into this passage where I think Jesus will make it all clear. Starting in verse 11. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Now Jesus is uh, traveling to Jerusalem right along the edge of Jewish Galilee and non-Jewish Samaritan Samaria. And he comes into some unnamed city. And there waiting for him are ten men who have leprosy. Uh, most of these were Jews. At least one of them was a Samaritan. And these guys had heard that Jesus could heal leprosy. So they were waiting for him. They knew he was coming. And when they saw him a long ways off, they shouted to him, begging for mercy, hoping that he would heal them too. Jesus shouts back, and he tells them again, from a distance, he shouts, Go, show yourself to the priests. Tells them what to do. Now, the reason he says this is because that was the biblical thing to do. That's what the scripture said for them to do, to go and show themselves to the priests. Jesus is calling them to obey scripture. In those days, the priests, one of their function was somewhat like a health inspector. They would inspect someone to see if they had leprosy or if maybe they were cured of leprosy. They would inspect food to see if it was kosher. They would inspect garments to see if they were, they were constructed properly or if they were contaminated. But in the case of leprosy, it was more than just going to a health inspector. Mosaic law treated leprosy unlike any other disease, even any other highly infectious or, or fatal disease. See, leprosy in the Old Testament is singled out and linked with sin. Now, it isn't that leprosy is somehow sinful. It isn't that you get leprosy by sinning. It's that leprosy in the Old Testament is the symbol of sin. As David Roper put it one time, he said, If you could see sin on the body, it would look like leprosy. See, leprosy attacked 
the uh, connecting tissue and the fingers and the toes and fingers and toes would fall off. Sometimes the nose would fall off. Uh, spongy tumors would start to appear on the face and on different parts of the body and even on the internal organs. It would begin to rot the insides. Probably the most damaging effect of leprosy is that uh, the nerve endings in, in the skin became desensitized so you couldn't feel anything. Someone with leprosy would burn themselves and they wouldn't even know it. The, their, their hand would stay in the fire because they didn't notice and it would, it would do more damage or they'd get cut or infected and they weren't aware of it. It would cause more disfigurement, more loss. See, gradually, slowly, the disease took over more and more of the person, rotting them from the inside, eventually killing them. Well, sin does the same thing to us. It rots us on the inside. It ruins us. We become desensitized and we don't even recognize the damage we're doing to ourselves and the people that we love around us. We don't understand. You know, we stare in amazement as a finger falls off and we can't figure out why because we don't see that it's a result of the sin. We don't see how that sin is causing such, such chaos and damage to our lives. Sometimes we, the, uh, the effects are not immediate. Others don't notice. They can't see what's going on inside us. But inside we are dead or dying. Just like leprosy in the Old Testament, sin has no earthly cure. You can jump on it and try to control it in one area just to discover it's been silently eating away at another area of your life. Both for public health reasons, and as a result of this symbolic connection, association with sin. Leprosy was treated very carefully and with very specific rules and procedures in, in the law. If somebody was suspected of having leprosy, they were to go to the priest, the priest would inspect them using the, the, the prescribed procedure, and if it was determined that that person had leprosy, they were treated as if they were dead. They were declared dead. They were, they were to show the, 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 the traditional mourning for the dead. They were to tear their clothes and mess up their hair and throw ashes on their head. They often lived in graveyards. They were not allowed to come anywhere near any city or any people. If someone came near them, they were to shout out, unclean, unclean, and back away so that person wouldn't come near them. You see, they were the walking dead. They probably even looked, you know, like the zombies in that movie, Night of the Living Dead. You know, all gross pieces falling off. There's a great line from that movie where the uh, sheriff is being interviewed about these zombies that are going around tearing the town apart. The sheriff says, yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. <laughs> you know, the, the fact is, when we are living in sin, the same is true of us. We're dead. We're all messed up. In fact, Scripture tells us we are born dead. The way the psalmist puts it, stone, cold, dead. We come from our mother's womb. We are the walking dead unless we receive healing at our Lord's hand. And to understand this passage, it's important to understand that connection between leprosy and sin. There I am. Okay, these ten men... They uh, hear that Jesus is coming. They cry out to Jesus, pleading for mercy. They kept their distance. They respected the law. They knew it was inappropriate for them to approach him because they 
were unclean. So they cry out from a distance. They're in need. They're not about to be silent. They know they can't come to Him. That They're not worthy to come to Him. But they also know that they have a desperate need. And so they cry out. I think it's worth noting that they cry out for mercy. They don't cry out in indignation. Saying, this is so unfair. I never wanted to have leprosy. I deserve better than this. They don't uh, uh, wallow in self-pity. They don't talk about where they got it. They just want a cure. You know, so often when we begin to see the effects of sin in our lives, the the devastation to our personality, the, the, the destruction to our relationships with people around us, when we start to see the effects of other sins, others' sins on our lives, the the hurt, the wounds, the, the struggle that forces on us with our own self-worth and inadequacy. As we begin to see the effects of sin, it is so easy, it is so common, it is so natural to become preoccupied with the unfairness of, all, of it all. These feelings are normal. But these feelings can trap us, can keep us from coming to the one who can heal us. Self-pity and bitterness may feel like old friends, but they're really parasites, leeches. They they, they would keep us from being healed so they could continue to live off of us. We are in need. We we have to face that and then turn to Jesus and to cry out to Him for mercy. Facing the fact that, that He doesn't owe us anything. He is not obligated to help us, but hoping in who He is, in His character. He is kind. He is compassionate. He is gentle. He is generous and loving. And when these uh, ten men cried out, Jesus responded. He told them what to do. Now their faith is fairly startling when you think about it. They simply turn and obey. Jesus told them to go back to Jerusalem. And when he told them this, nothing happened. They weren't suddenly healed. Their appearance hadn't changed at all. But they obeyed. They turned and headed for Jerusalem. They didn't get hung up on, on the simplicity of it. They didn't balk at the absurdity of it or the possible embarrassment. Maybe they would go all the way to Jerusalem and the priest would look at them and say, What are you doing here? Get out of here. No, they simply turned and obeyed. And as they did, they were healed. They were cleansed. They looked at each other as they were walking toward Jerusalem, and they saw immediately something was changing. Maybe they, one of them said to the other, Man, your face, the, 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 the ulcers are gone. Heard in response, you know, so are yours, your face is clean. They immediately looked at their hands and saw their fingers were straight and strong. There may have been scars on them, but they were healed. See, that's the way faith works. We come face to face with the fact that we are in need. We have a desperate need. And we turn to Jesus. And we cry out to Him. He hears us. And He tells us what to do. Then we simply turn and obey. Obedience is the key 
to healing. So much of the devastation of sin in our lives is because sin at its essence is disobedience. We, we, we lean on our own understanding. We do what seems like it's going to work to us. We follow our own reasoning rather than the Word of God, rather than what God says in Scripture. We end up just causing more damage. So much of the devastation in our lives is because we do not listen to what God says in His Word. We uh, excuse ourselves because of our confusion or because of our pain. We, we, we ignore what He says, just don't bother to look and find out. Or we do know what He says, but we just don't believe it. It can't be that simple. We want something more dramatic. So we turn away from it and we make our decisions and, and we act. And with time, sometimes years, we begin to, to feel the consequences of those decisions and those actions. Again, we see our lives being torn apart. We stare in wonder as a finger falls off. and We don't understand. But if we will face our need and turn to Jesus, to cry out to Him, and then when He tells us what to do, do it. Simply because He says to. Then we will find healing. It may not happen all at once like these guys. It may not be a, a sudden cure. And it certainly does not mean there will not be pain in our lives. We will continue to live in a, in a fallen world. We will continue to sin. We will continue to suffer others' sins against us. But if we turn and obey, we will discover healing and health and wholeness in our lives beyond what we could imagine. Jesus is that powerful. He is that good. Now this uh, whole incident could have ended here and we would have gained valuable lessons. We would have gained insight into Jesus, His generosity, His compassion, His power to heal. We would have seen the critical importance of obedience. But this is where the story gets good. This is where the point he really is making comes out. Nine of these men obeyed. One delayed. He turned around and headed back to Jesus. He risked everything. To come back to Jesus. Now, Jesus, the, the, the magic could have not worked if you were walking away from Jerusalem instead of toward Jerusalem. Jesus could have been angry at him for coming back when Jesus told him to go to Jerusalem. The people around Jesus probably would be angry with him because he would contaminate them if he hadn't already been declared pure by the, by the priests. This man risks everything. Why? Well, the only explanation, the only thing that I can think of that would motivate this kind of risk is that he was in love. Jesus had loved him, and he couldn't help it. He had to love Jesus back. I think this is what uh, Jesus was talking about in, in the last chapter, chapter 16, when he says, Some will take the kingdom by force. This man was so overwhelmed with gratitude and love for Jesus that he 
couldn't help it. He was reckless. He ran to Jesus. He was coming and there was nothing that was going to stop him. He was no longer content, no longer willing to just obey from a distance. He was compelled to draw near to Jesus, to come to him, to throw himself at Jesus' feet and to worship him. He was compelled to love Jesus and express that love. See, when we're in love, we take risks. And often we're oblivious to those risks. I remember when I first fell in love with Becky. I had admired her and had strong feelings for her for some time, but we had never even gone out. I, uh, uh, we, were, we knew each other, but I had no rational reason to think she cared for me. But for some reason, at that time, it seemed the only logical, rational thing to do was to go to her and tell her I loved her. Now, that was risky. In fact, it was stupid. It was downright presumptuous and uh, foolhardy. But again, at the time, I was compelled. It was tell her or burst. This guy didn't think it through. It was go to Jesus or burst. Because he was in love. He had responded to him in love. And notice Jesus' response. He's disappointed. But not with this guy. He's disappointed that the other nine missed the point of it all. You get the feeling he's delighted with this guy. Here's somebody who sees deeper. Here's somebody who understands. This guy that came back was not disregarding obedience. He just realized that there's something that comes first. There's something of more immediate importance. This man treats Jesus as a person, not as a cosmic vending machine. He relates to Jesus with integrity, recognizing that Jesus didn't have to do this. This was grace. This was Jesus' generosity that motivated him to heal all ten of these lepers. See, this ex-leper worships first. He expresses his love first. Then he obeys. Jesus sadly asks, where are the others? Jesus never demanded that they express their gratitude, that they worship Him. But He's disappointed that they don't. He's disappointed that they really miss the point. They haven't done anything wrong. They did what they were told to do. They did the biblical thing. But they still missed the point. See, Jesus had not cleansed them just so they could merrily go on with their busy agendas and so they could fit more comfortably in society or for all these other good things that happen. That was not Jesus' motive. That's not why He cleansed them. He cleansed them so that they could approach Him, so that they could worship Him, so that they could experience the delight of an intimate love relationship with Him. Now here is the point. This is it. This is the point you cannot miss. Jesus has not delivered us so that we can feel better about ourselves and relate more positively in society. Jesus hasn't delivered us so that we can get on with the, 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 the pressures and priorities and preoccupations of our lives. Jesus has not freed us so that we can merrily go along our way, though we are certainly free to do that if we choose. 
Jesus has healed us. He's forgiven us. He has freed us so that we can approach Him. So that we can worship Him. So that we can enjoy the delight of an intimate love relationship with Him. Again, realize those other nine were not doing bad things. They were doing correct things. They were doing good things. They were doing valuable things. They were doing the the biblical obedient thing. They were doing the religious thing. But they still missed the point. We can occupy ourselves with doing the, the, the good religious thing. We can occupy ourselves with doing very valuable, very important things. We can, we, we, we can uh, devote ourselves to serving within the body. You can teach two Sunday school classes. You can have uh, three-hour devotions every day and, and, and two family devotions a week. You can give 20% of everything you have and everything that, that, that you earn and still miss the point. Because these, we weren't saved to do all these things. These things are good. They're important. But we were saved so that we could come, draw near to God. Enjoy the delight of His presence. Express our love to Him. Pour out our praise and worship to Him. Our gratitude to him. And it so often happens. We get saved. We finally face into our self-pity or our pride. We turn away from it. We cry out to Jesus and he heals us. And we're delighted. We're thrilled. This is great. But we so quickly become so occupied with doing good religious things that we miss the whole point of it. We know we've missed it somewhere, but we're not sure exactly where. Forty years ago, the great expositor, Harry Ironside, lamented, There is so little real worship on the part of Christian people today. Even when believers come together, so often it is not to worship God. Do we realize God is seeking worshipers? I'm afraid too many have the idea that God is seeking workers. But there is something that must come before work, and that is worship. To be in the presence of God with a heart filled with adoration means more to Him than to busy ourselves in His service. We shall not serve any less acceptably or earnestly because we worship first rather than if we give all of our time to service. Now Jesus notices that the one who got it was a foreigner. Here's the same word there for foreigner that is on the wall of the temple that's telling non-Jews to keep out. This guy wasn't from within the church. He didn't grow up in a Christian home. Paul says that being a Jew was a great advantage in every respect. And in the same way, growing up in a Christian home is a great advantage in every respect. But there is an enormous danger. We can become so familiar with the right things to do. We can become so familiar with the wonder of God that our relationship with God becomes mechanical. Sometimes I think it would be better not to know any of the religious stuff and just respond to Him straight from the heart. I remember a a young woman at the church in California where I interned. 
This young lady was from a, a motorcycle gang. She had beautiful, colorful tattoos all over her. Well, I assume it was all over her, excuse me. But uh, <laughs> uh, what you could see had tattoos on it. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> She had come to the church because someone had told her that that's where you should go if you wanted to learn about Jesus. And I was on call for counseling. She came in and she told me she wanted to meet the Lord. You know, so this is the time, one of those times where God gives you fruit that's just ready to fall off of the vine. So I briefly explained it to her. And with the briefest of introductions, she just dove into her relationship with the Lord. Just absolutely delighted. Just to see her, her excitement about being loved by Jesus. I remember when she uh, went to this, uh, this small singles Bible study we had. Uh, here she was with her, her, her coarse language, her rough appearance. Just overflowing with love for the Lord. I remember the awkwardness of the people there as she would happily shout out, Damn, the Lord is good! And they'd all kind of go. <laughs> but I remember how her innocent and contagious enthusiasm reminded every one of those, that, those people there that this is exactly how it's supposed to be. Overflowing with love for our Lord. See, God has given us such a treasure that we... Don't enjoy it. We don't take advantage of it. It's like somebody gave us a check for a million dollars and we stick it on the wall because it's such a pretty check. We don't cash it. We don't enjoy it. We miss the whole point of what it's for. See, people, we were created to enjoy fellowship with God. We were created to express praise and gratitude. Expressing worship. And praise is what life is about. It's what makes life, life. So often we tend to think that, that worshiping God, expressing praise, is this dreary obligation that we have to do on Sundays because we're told to. Nothing could be further from the truth. No one had to tell that leper to go back and worship his Lord. No one has to tell a lover to keep telling his beloved how wonderful she is. When you're standing awestruck in front of the sawtooths, just looking at them, nobody has to tell you to say, those are beautiful. See, these expressions are inevitable. They, you can't keep them inside when you are awake to beauty, awake to intimacy. These are at once the expression and the experience of beauty, of joy, of delight, of wonder. We were created to praise, and it is as we praise that we enjoy. C.S. Lewis put it this way, I think we delight to express what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, or to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people you're with care no more for it than for a tin can in the ditch, or to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. See, people, we have access to a relationship that is closer and more intimate, more free, and more secure than any relationship any two lovers who have ever lived have ever experienced. 
We have access to a being, a person of such beauty, of such perfection, of such goodness, of such kindness, of such generosity, that if we were to catch too great a glimpse of Him all at once, we would burst before we could get all the praise out. But we so often don't realize this. We walk like those other nine with our head down, intent on obeying from a distance, going along about the business that we know we are supposed to do. We haven't begun to open our eyes. We're like those other nine. We haven't begun to think about it deeply, to explore it. We have not begun to enjoy what Jesus died to obtain for us. We miss the point of our salvation. And again, obedience is important. I want to see this church filled with people who will obey at any cost. I want to see this church filled with people who will serve gladly and give joyously. I want to see this church filled with people who will face the sin in their lives and turn away from it. But if that's all we do, if that's all we have, we have missed the point. Don't just obey from a distance. Run to your Lord and throw yourself at His feet. Every morning when you wake up, tell Him you love Him. Walk with Him. Talk with Him. Worship Him. That's the point. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. You tell us truth. You give us instructions to live by. We are grateful for that. We know that your word is health and life. That we, we are protected from falling into pits. We are protected from destroying ourselves and people around us by your word. You give us wisdom. You give us understanding. It is a generous gift and we want to obey you. We want to trust you enough that we do what you say. But Lord, open our eyes so that we don't miss the point, so that we don't just spend our lives thinking that it's all just about obedience. Help us to lift our eyes and to see you and to run back to you as we obey and as we see your healing power to worship you, to see what kind of person you really are, to see your generosity, your goodness, your love, and to fall on our knees and thank you to enjoy the delight of your beauty by just letting it flow out of us. Lord, we want to be a people who worship you. Again, Lord, we need your spirit in us to open our eyes, to remind us to, when we wake up in the middle of the night to draw our, our hearts to you and to put on our lips that praise, that, that worship. When we get up in the morning, when we stop during the day, as we're driving in our car, as we're taking a coffee break, just fill our hearts with wonder at your goodness, at your love. Help us to enjoy the incredible treasure that you have given us. We praise you. You are a wonderful God. Amen.